Hi there, and welcome back to The Fuse Show. Today we have Piper F Foster Wilder uh, as the guest in the show. She's the founder and CEO of 60 Hertz Microgrids. Uh, this company develops software to maintain microgrids from village infrastructure to remote industrial sites to resiliency microgrids on the critical infrastructure. The company has won more than seven national and international awards for their work. In 2020, she became a Tory Birch Foundation Fellow, and she came to Alaska to serve as a Deputy de um, Director of Renewable Energy Alaska Project in Anchorage. There, she became acquainted with the opportunity and challenges of project development, financing, and maintaining remote power grids. She's uh, previously the Vice President of Amethyst um, Controls, an IoT company, and she was named Aspen Magazine's 10 Women of Aspen. Uh, she is a Humboldt Fellow and has worked at Ecological Institute of Berlin for seven, several years and authored several papers on siting of utility-scale renewables. She currently lives in Anchorage with her husband and three-year-old daughter. Thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. So the space that you're in is, rel you, you mentioned that it's relatively niche. Can you, can you describe why you yeah, think it's niche? Yeah, truly. So, um, you know, as you said in the, in the intro, when I came to Alaska, despite having a history working in renewable energy, um, it was the first time I'd ever heard the term microgrid. And Alaska has 200 indigenous uh, Alaska Native communities. Sorry. 200 Native communities that oh. are um, effectively microgrids. The state is so big, even though we often depict it on the map as like an island floating off the coast of California. Alaska is actually you know, larger than the entire lower 48. And so when I got here, it was the first time I'd seen what life in remote villages looked like and that it would actually be impossible to bring utility infrastructure to such a large landmass. So mm. there were microgrids there. Um, and I was really concerned about the diesel dependence that these sites had because it drives up energy costs yielding mm -hmm. a kilowatt hour price that would be four to five to 10 times what most of us in an urban place are paying especially painful in communities that don't have a lot of economic activity. So I initially started the company in order to finance renewable energy assets that were in these very remote, very distributed sites. But on the way to that goal, we discovered that without a proper maintenance solution for renewable energy, for remote assets, that it would be a waste of investor dollars, the, the failure rate was high. Hmm. And so my at that point, I had brought aboard a, a co-founder and we sat in on project demos uh, of other CMMS software to see if we couldn't just fulfill that gap um, by buying it. But indeed, none of those other CMMS solutions were a fit. And so um, with the naivete of being non-technical founders, we said, great, we'll just make our own, um, which I can tell you lots of stories about why that may have been a, a misguided decision. But nonetheless, we founded a business on it, ultimately pivoted, dropped the project finance activity. And so our niche over the last three years really has been microgrid maintenance. Um, microgrids are in many places, not just Alaska, but of course, all over the uh, developing world, emerging markets, Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, um, but increasingly even in urban places as a backup for the central utility grid. People probably remember, of course, California wildfires over the last years and the threat to our utility infrastructure as well as keeping the lights on for people. Um, but then increasingly also, um, we saw this with uh, maintenance issues for ERCOT in Texas when that freak ice storm rolled through in February. So microgrids are a resiliency technique if you are a utility. All this to say 60 Hertz, our software now is for the maintenance of distributed energy resources, distributed energy assets. That can be a microgrid. It can also be a big solar array. It can be utility scale wind. Hmm. Uh, and so our jam is really in energy uh, maintenance. It's a kind of overlooked category. And, and this is what we're really enthusiastic about. So I first came across the word microgrid probably just not hmm. too long ago. And my understanding of a microgrid is just kind of a typical energy grid, but scaled down and typically reliant on things like solar. Is that yeah, a I think that's definition? a totally fair definition. To be to be candid, the industry itself is a little confused about how to define it. Um, but, okay, gotcha. <laughs> but uh, you know, we see lots of we see lots of uh, sort of hand waving around it. Um, but yes, it would be a mini electricity grid where you're going to have some central box. Usually, there's often a diesel generator as a backup, and then a site specific renewable, uh, site appropriate renewable, being solar, wind, even a little hydro project. Um, if we're at a large industrial site, like a big mine or oil and gas activity, then the genset definitely will be a part of the microgrid. Um, but as, as diesel fuel is expensive to both transport and to operate with, people are looking for more renewables. 
So prior to the creation of your work, what, who typically is the type of person that would manage a microwave? Yeah, that's, um, we were curious too. So often, uh, you know, this is, this is what gets to the human and the impact component. What 60 Hertz is an impact company. Um, but usually it would be a local lay person who has been tapped to look after these expensive, huge, noisy, often intimidating energy assets. Uh, and so, you know, recruiting some poor soul in the community to come and be the power plant operator, you know, in some cases they would have had a bit of formal training. This is in, you know, particularly remote sites. Otherwise they might get sent off to a two week, two month boot camp to learn about diesel generator maintenance or wind turbine maintenance. Great. Um, in other cases, uh, particularly as we see power for health, health clinics in, in the emerging market, the doctor or the nurse may be out back looking in on the inverter for that solar battery array or double checking that the batteries are functioning as they should. And that's a, that's a really exciting use case for us because we are designing software that is um, uniquely with a lower literacy user interface, which also can mean people new to technology, not just those that may not be strong mm -hmm. readers, but someone new to technology or new to the asset that they're maintaining. Um, I, I like to say I'm not very mechanical. I'm not very good actually at troubleshooting. I'm getting better at it, but you know, even fixing my car or the record player, I probably would be the last one you'd want to talk to. And so if, if I can figure out using our software, how to fix something, um, I think that's a good stand in for many of our users. When I think about the idea of maintaining a source of power delivery, I think about the cockpit of an airplane and I'm not sure if you've ever seen one, but it's like full of dials, knobs, buttons, switches. And I just feel like how the heck does anyone know what's going on? I have, is that a close I love that metaphor. I might steal it. I might steal it. That's a perfect okay, yeah, yeah, go for no, it. <laughs> I love it. I love it because, because it is. And, and, you know, even if there aren't quite so many dials and, you know, buzzers and things inside, you know, right. you know it's going to explode if you push the wrong thing. I, I think that is, that is actually often something that we hear from new operators, new power mm -hmm. operators, is there's a great fear that it's go it is going to explode, whatever it is. And, um, you know, and it's not, it's not wrong. Like a diesel gen set has a lot of fuel in it. A battery is effectively a bomb. We love to talk about lithium ion batteries and we're increasingly becoming closer and closer to them. They're in many of our products and increasingly a power wall or, you know, batteries or whatever, but it fundamentally is a very small container of a lot of energy. And so we do need to be careful mm -hmm. with how we're treating these. So that's all the more reason why proper training um, is is critical for getting new newcomers to our maintenance field familiar with how to with how to look after a power asset. Um, we have a special thesis around women in maintenance because globally the field is largely, it's a, it's a male profession for, for whatever reason. Um, we think uh, the, the studies project 800,000 new entry-level jobs in energy uh, globally over, over coming years. And if we stay on track with where the projections are going, that will be 75 to 80% males that hold those positions. And so if we can bring that into more of a 50-50 balance, we think there's, we think there's mm -hmm. some benefit, but that takes some encouragement. I mean, even of the 225 operators that are on our platform using our software today to do their maintenance work, only six are women. And there's just, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there to encourage more females to the role. So is the goal of your platform to abstract away the large sums of knowledge you have to know to operate a machine and try to abstract it away to a centralized, I don't know, like control panel that's controlled by, I guess, experts or AI? Well, sort of, you know, I think so. So first things first, there are a lot of people, especially in the energy space that are doing maintenance. They say, well, we've already got a monitoring platform. And like, that's the big fallacy. Like we all hear the phrase operations and maintenance as synonyms, but they're two very different mm -hmm. functions. And so we right. complement a maintenance, uh, a rather monitoring platform. Um, when we talk about a culture of maintenance, then that is broken into preventative maintenance, you know, going through checking things, making sure everything is functioning properly, recording values. That's a lot of what 60 Hertz does, um, where absent our platform, people would have used a piece of paper and a clipboard and a pencil to accomplish mm, the work. And so it's that PM activity, but then it's also taking corrective action. And that's getting at what you were touching on, where 
learning how to troubleshoot, you know, learning how to fix something, learning, even having some step-by-step -step guides in any manual, in your owner's manual and your vehicle, you've probably said, what does this mean? What should I do to diagnose it? And, you know, you followed some basic troubleshooting routine. We would like to help people do that using some templates that will create assets specific for a customer. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I imagine the array, the different types of microgrids can just be very wide in their styling, the layout of like buttons, their control panels. I imagine they can be totally different from one model to another. Yes right? and no. Yes and no. The hardware is standardizing. Okay. So, you know, typically if there'll be a generator and a control panel for the, the, the assets in general, and then certain types of batteries, wind inverters. So it's a, it's a fairly discrete set of asset types. However, then you've got lots of make and model and manufacturers. And so that's something just as a company that we're flirting with is um, can we create a series of templates so that, you know, if you've got any of the following five kinds of generators here, common questions, PM questions and troubleshooting routines you should be asking mm -hmm. about, same with wind, blah, blah, blah. We don't know yet if that's if that's going to prove true. There's a small, you know, a nuance that that is within this is the layout of a powerhouse or a microgrid differ. And so if you're conducting a checklist on your on your 60 hertz app within a tablet and you're going to that corner of the room and then back to this corner of the room just to follow the order of the questions, that's not helpful, but you'd rather work, um, you know, systematically as your powerhouse is laid out. So what, what can we do in a software to facilitate a more logical workflow? So you mentioned that people use a software on tablets. Do you ever find that a lack of tablets in a specific region are, is a constraint from people using and adopting well, that, the platform? The, so there was a fascinating Wall Street Journal article in 2017 that was formative as we created the initial prototype, which was the cost, it's called the end of typing, if anyone wants to look it up. So it's called, it, you know, it said the cost of, of, of smartphones is decreasing globally so much <laughs> that you can get a cheap Android at a very basic income level, but can the user of that Android read well? Are they new to technology? A lot of this core, the, the, that, that was a thesis that really shaped our concept about what, let's go beyond an accessible user interface. That's for people that may have a vision impairment or, or whatever. Let's go beyond mm -hmm. that to someone who is brand new to technology, brand new to maintenance, brand new to the asset, um, or who, you know, many of our users are, are elderly. They haven't been to an optometrist because they live so far away from a hub community. They can't see well. See. So there are lots of ways to, to compensate for that. So form factor of tablets and phones, uh, we're getting a sense of, you know, most of our users only want to spend two to $300 for a tablet. And so then the replacement rate is high. Yeah, start over again on the tablet just won't last that long. Um, but we did significant field testing with the way that influences the software is, okay, if I'm using a cheap tablet it, and you're taking a photo, a lot of what we facilitate is field data capture and like my hands are not perfectly steady, the photos are chronically mm. blurry, which can be an issue. Right. Whereas that stabilization mechanism is something you get when the hardware costs more. So we've done a lot of testing with various make and models to determine you know, how we can compensate for that cheaper form factor of tablet. And you mentioned that these users are people who live in potentially remote parts of like, I guess, more rural yeah. regions. How do you find Well, them? our customers tend to be utility companies, project developers, and, uh, you know, similar. So our customer would be employing, would be employing those individuals, but the, you know, the nature of this work is very understudied and interesting. Um, we've invested 275, actually approaching 300 hours of human centered design field research where we, I, you know, flew out with an anthropologist and with my nursing mm -hmm. infant several years ago to a community far above the Arctic Circle um, in a little float plane. And we spent eight hours interviewing the operators in this particular community to understand what is your life like? What is the worst part of your life? What is the best part of your life? Mm -hmm. How do you feel honored? How do you feel um, acknowledged? What do you wish if you had a magic wand? What would you do? Asking these kinds of questions in order to derive an understanding of what our product should accomplish. And some of the most interesting observations that have come in working with indigenous communities, with working with remote and very rural people, um, a couple of things come to mind to share. Um, for starters, and this is kind of dark, but the, the, the likelihood of death is much higher in these rural areas. Um, we work with operators that 
um, whether it's a hunting accident, whether it is um, danger crossing an ice road across the Arctic where the, the seasonal thaw is changing and so the ability to travel on ice roads is changing. Some of our work in sub-Saharan Africa are in communities where people are in conflict zones, where it's actually quite dangerous for them to get between Lagos and um, the, the region that they're living in. So you'd like to limit the number of trips they have to take or that their supervisor must take out to the community because they'll be traveling through conflict. Um, a number of our users on the industrial side, the likelihood of seeing a colleague killed by being um, backed over by an accident at work is, is far greater. This is very dangerous work that if we are only living yeah. and working in very urban areas, you know, where like carpal tunnel is your biggest risk. That's that's a that's a huge difference. Um, other other observations that we found for new users of technology is like a very great fear of making a mistake where you know that you can just close the app or back out or, you know, just like mend it. The operator right. is very concerned that they've made a mistake or hampering something or doing something really wrong that they might be criticized for. So how can we give them affirmation through our user interface that they're that they're doing the right thing? Um, and as well, you know, just really heartfelt, tender points about how we feel acknowledged in our work and in our life. This was a foundational point for me in starting 60 Hertz is that wish mm -hmm. to be contributing more. I think if you've ever been unemployed, even for a few months, you know you have so much capacity and so much that you want to give and yet may not have the venue to do that. And so for, for many of our operators, they may be working part-time, they may not be having a full-time job. No one is there saying like, hey, great work, or wow, we really appreciated that you kept the lights on in your community for the last 24 days uninterrupted. Mm -hmm. Those kind of kudos are far and few between, and there may not be a culture of complimenting where you live anyway. And yet this is so fundamental to people feeling value. I mean, work is one of the primary ways that we feel good about ourselves in our lives, period. So this is a place where I think the computerized maintenance management software world, CMMS, 60 Hertz is a type of CMMS. I think we contribute a lot to helping people who are largely unsung, but are fairly fundamental in any caring profession. I think these are the nurses of infrastructure um, that these individuals uh, really do need to be elevated and praised for their work. And that's something that our platform does. So you, you called 60 hertz an impact company previously do you have a special meaning around that yeah, terminology yeah. well what's what's uh, the impact that you care the most about within the scope of oh there are company? lots of ways to look at it but we are a social impact investment so that's measured in terms of you know we aim to achieve commercial returns our exit valuations are just as high as as any other software company um, or our projections, mm -hmm. I should say, the, the the difference or the way that we come in at the impact uh, twofold. So for starters, um, looking at the sustainable development goals, we hit on that related to decent work. And so this means, are we helping people attain a job and sustain it? Are they able to stay in a good job? And are they able to advance through their job? And that might be measured through the ability to get a promotion within their same company, the ability to be recognized for on-time work, for um, helping a mentor or work with a peer. Th these are the kinds of impacts that help keep people employed and help them retain the wealth that that job is providing and do good things with it. Um, similarly, in places that are uh, where our customers are utility companies or project developers, is the cost of electricity in their community remaining level or going down? If they have a proper maintenance routine, then electricity mm -hmm. should be cheaper for the developer or the utility to provide, and ultimately that tariff mm -hmm. certainly should not go up. Um, and then is it more reliable with their well-known national indicators, international indicators on the average um, duration of a power outage event? We help keep track of that because proper maintenance keeps the lights on longer. Um, and then when it comes to, to um, just dignity with work, we think about even for our very urban customers that are calling around servicing backup diesel generators, where you wouldn't necessarily see a greenhouse gas impact or whatnot, are we helping that more blue collar individual feel the sense of, of attainment and worth and contribution that each of us deserves? 
Was that a con? Was this idea and philosophy of an impact company something you had from day one? I think so. I mean, the notion um, of of impact corporations is, of course, widespread, and um, we looked initially at the work of Mohammed Yunus, and my co-founder had uh, worked at Grameen Bank uh, prior to to joining 60 Hertz. Hmm. So this concept of like doing well by doing good is is certainly that had been a thesis. I was really moved, you know, having not been born in Alaska and just relatively recently moving here. Um, the the we we many of us know well that life and conditions in Native American communities is is very difficult and hard. And when I came to Alaska, I had been unaware of that for the Alaska Native communities, just the degree to which um, some some individuals may have a much bigger. Um, uphill battle to 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 fight than than certainly I can say in my own life I am the beneficiary of nothing but abundance and blessing from wonderful parents and I feel so grateful and and really responsible for what the the platform that that has given me so looking at um, things like adverse childhood experiences and some of the emerging research about how people who have faced extreme levels of abuse or neglect or addiction or been around that in their rearing, how challenging that is for their, their success and, and thriving going forward. Yeah. And that's not just an Alaska Native or Native American. I mean, this is really, this is across the, across the map, like the, really the, the, the ACEs scores among people that, you know, may not be something that, that many people are aware of, but an, an adverse childhood experience score is often surprisingly high. And once we start understanding this, mm. it explains a lot, as well as how we start crafting solutions. I'm really interested in, in policy that is informed by research so that we can make good decisions with how we spend public money or such that, that startups like mine that want to make a difference can do so in a manner that will be effective. Is there a specific interaction or moment that you remember having when, call it in like your early days of Alaska, where something just just really hit you emotionally where he's like, I, I saw something that I never expected to see, or I read about it in the past, but never understood the weight of it until I experienced it personally, or at least yeah, semi-personally. Yeah, so many, so many, I appreciate the question a lot. Um, I think a couple stories come to mind. Um, I had, I had uh, met my husband, it was just a boyfriend at the time, and he said, I'm about to go on this big expedition, why don't you come with us? And so it was, uh, <laughs> it's a good adventure. I said yes to. I was like, I mean, it's not. It's a good thing I had no idea what I was getting in for. But off we headed. I flew to a small community called Point Hope, which is the northwesternmost mm -hmm. community in North America. It's just it's a very small um, Inupiaq village. And I got off of an airplane, a little tiny float plane. I think I traveled for three and a half days to get there. And there was there was my boyfriend Nathaniel waiting, and the wind was blowing sideways, and we walked from this little airstrip into the into the community, and then proceeded um, with with some good friends, his good friends, to then walk for twelve days down an Arctic coastline to to another community, and so we saw amazing wildlife and bears, and I was like totally infatuated with this guy. But the thing that made the biggest impact was the community. I had no idea about living conditions and about the cost of groceries and the grocery store and how poor the water tasted and you know all of these things it was it was really moving to me um fast forward we uh, ultimately got a saddle on that horse and we got married it took some doing um with my husband but um we we got married a year and a half later and i was a good sport and moved to alaska and uh, left my life in colorado and uh, uh, and i I'm not sure many people would do that. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure either. I think I should get some points, but <laughs> I have an amazing husband. So <laughs> anyway, it was, it was, um, it was, it was, I thought I would just come for a few years, but upon moving here, getting the job working at Renewable Energy Alaska Project and, you know, my, our life evolved here, I think seeing the living conditions, the impact on a daily basis, and then knowing from my energy background that diesel dependence was like doing nothing to help the situation when people were paying over half of their household income, what little they did have for energy. Mm. Cause I was like, this is a solvable problem. We've got a lot of renewable energy that works even in the cold and dark. Why aren't we doing this? And so it was with that spirit. I always say it's with it was with hubris that I started the company to solve this, even though I've since gotten a lot more humility about how hard it is to supplant diesel, particularly in an Arctic environment. 
um, all this to say, as as the platform evolved, we then went out and had a training. I was helping train some early users on our app and flew um, to another community where operators had come in, um, power plant operators had come in in order to get the 60 hertz training. And one of the gentlemen showed up, oh, two hours late into the into the training and was was clearly um, intoxicated and having having a challenge. And I just had so much compassion for him because it was clear that he wanted and needed this good job and was struggling with the addiction. I mm -hmm. have, um, you know, have been close to people that are addicted to, you know, whatever it is that they're addicted to. It's, it is a very, very hard challenge. And so what it takes to ultimately, you know, keep keep um, keep ourselves on on a good track as, as he did become a 60 hertz user and was on our platform and as things evolved, I ultimately started hearing more stories about what having an operator who is responsible for the power plant for the microgrid in a little community means. Um, there were stories about um, a, a, a dentist who was traveling from a hub community out to perform a root canal in this same community, mm -hmm. but the lights were flickering so badly that he couldn't see to get his work done or operate his tools. Had to call back to the the central community. Is any can anything be done? What can we do to get the operator to go and see what's going on? He hadn't been in a position to properly maintain his generators. Um, it, you know, it's just there are such human impacts when you're looking at a little tiny electricity grid at a village scale um, that 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 are challenging. Sadly, this same operator that I'm talking about um, passed on some some months after all of this, and he's not the first operator that we've lost. So it it is it is it is very human and very personal, I think, for my team and for me. And not to dwell only on the difficulty, there are also just beautiful, far more beautiful examples of individuals who are so capable, who are so able to, to rise to an occasion, who will travel upriver to another community to help pitch in um, and resolve an issue, to mentor yeah. one another. Uh, again, the women that are on the platform, there are so many more instances of phenomenal human capacity and resourcefulness. I don't only want to, to delve, it's just that, that those more tender-hearted examples, I think, are also what really compel me and this team to, to be pursuing the thesis. I'm not sure if there's any research done on it, but one of my core values of life is just the fact that when I think to spark the positive cycle of mm -hmm. compassion, you just need to invest a ton mm -hmm. into it. And I, I would like to believe that when you show love and kindness to someone, they're more predisposed, maybe not like forced to, but predis more predisposed to show love and kindness to people in their lives. And I think that's heavily mm -hmm. underrated. And I think it's unfortunately not something that can really be measured like my numbers. Yeah, what a beautiful thesis. I mean, even the nature of your of your work with this podcast is, of course, extending that compassion and help. And I don't know how you would put a number on it, but I agree. It's it, it seems like an intuitive law of gravity that we all that we all respond to and and know. Um, I think there's metaphysics around that, probably. How does your day to day now in Alaska contrast, I guess, to day to day life prior hmm. to moving? Like yeah. how different are they? What are the biggest elements? Well, that's of difference? a good question. I, uh, um, where to even start with that? I think on a personal level, I had I, I came from Aspen in Colorado, which is a very wealthy, um, probably unrealistic environment, and I enjoyed my time living there, and you know, still love going back. But what had chafed me at first in moving to Anchorage, but what I now really appreciate and value is just the reality as well as the diversity of socioeconomic classes that, that live in Alaska. Anchorage has um, more than 101, 110 languages spoken in the schools and some of the most diverse neighborhoods hmm. in the country is just, it is really a rich environment in a far different way than Aspen was a rich environment. So I, I appreciate the ways that I've changed in the course of this move and this transition. We still go back and forth a fair amount also because half of my team is in Denver um, and mm -hmm. with some of our work, the time change is helpful just to be a little bit closer because Alaska is, is several hours behind um, even mountain time. So uh, the that's one way that, that life has changed. I think I'm evolving, you know, as a professional and as I age in my career or advance in my career, um, finding out how to be more effective, finding out how to work, work differently to be uh, actually a lot more humble than I was earlier. 
uh, just much more keenly aware of how often I'm wrong or how often I may not exactly have it right in terms of a conclusion or an evaluation. Um, that's, that's actually quite freeing. When you mentioned that Aspen is unrealistic, can you mm. elaborate on that? Yeah, so many ways, uh, and I hope that no one from Aspen is listening, but likely um, if anybody ever does, they would probably understand. You know, I think um, <laughs> when, I, when I first moved there in 2005, people said, well, you know, in Aspen, you usually either have two houses or two jobs. And I was definitely in the two jobs category the entire time I was there. Um, but what that means in terms of a social life is something I've, I've thought a lot about is that the, the way um, the way that in Aspen or in more wealthy, certainly, you know, that's not the only place, but many, many of these um, more well-to-do environments that the social skills someone has are, I would categorize as country club social skills. And what that would mean is to, to know um, the type of conversation to lead, how long to linger on a subject, how proximate you would act emotionally with the person you're talking to and the frequency of jokes. Those are all kinds of like examples of country mm -hmm. club social skills. Whereas what I hope for my own daughter and what I have been grateful to think about more in our move to Alaska are what I call church social skills. So the ability to, you know, like build a really deep, authentic relationship with someone through spending time together to, um, to, to, to be more about listening, to dwell on questions, that it is okay to talk about work and ask about what kind of work life, to help one another, um, to, you know, that it's, it's, it's a social network based on experience and help um, as opposed to a network. And that's a, a subtle but really critical mm. difference. I worry about this with millennials. I mean, mm. even as, I'm just outside, I'm just north of the millennial age bracket, but as I see some of my younger employees and, and, and relatives, I worry that, you know, just a few years back from those that were, those of us that are, are um, of my generation, that they're just a few years back, like, I just missed a lot of my life being on social media. And the impact mm. of that is when it comes to sincerity, attention span, authenticity, it really, it really makes me paranoid because I definitely perceive that difference. I don't know if they can see it. But it worries me for my daughter a little bit too. Just you know, like the, the the milk of how we connect with one another is. Don't you think? I mean, are you experiencing this too? I can't oh, tell what generation. Really. You're in, I, yeah. I have a uh, I have a younger sister, and I think she technically classifies as Gen Z, and I'm on I'm at the cusp of Gen Z millennial, and she's at the she's on, for sure on the yeah, Gen Z yeah. side, and I think the amount of time just like staring at a phone just like mind boggles me. I, I, nowadays, I try to avoid my phone as much as possible just because I feel like uh, unless I'm reading a book that I think is highly beneficial for my mind, almost everything else on my phone is a uh, urgent, but unimportant. Urgent, but unimportant. I love that. Yeah, exactly. Or, or one that you kind of like wish you didn't have to deal with. What are you doing? If you're not on and, your phone, uh, what would you rather be? Or how are you electing to devote your attention? So I'm trying to use my phone in such a way I don't look at my phone. Cause I think the phone, phones are still a powerful tool. Like the fact that you have connectivity, if you're in a yeah. generally, like a generally yeah. well-connected area, connectivity to the public knowledge, the sum of all public knowledge and at the tip of your fingers. And I think that's just a powerful thing, but I think to wield it well, you need to have a lot of time where you're spent alone and just thinking as opposed to uh, trying to listen to what other people are trying to post out right. into the world. I don't have the exact numbers, but I think on a previous podcast today, someone was telling me how uh, on social media sites like Facebook, fake news is uh, more viral by a factor of like wow. 7x or 8x wow. compared real to real news. So the most of the stuff you read may or may not even be true. And I feel like I don't want to spend my life consuming not true statements. Uh, you'll start building a not true view of the world. And you'll start tackling or thinking about problems that don't exist. Wow. Um, well, wow. think about, yeah, exactly. And then devoting energy and thought and attention to problems that don't exist. Right. That's fascinating. And uh, I have this major concern for people in my generation and younger. The depression rates will be really high because people look at social media and think to themselves, I'm not, I'm not what other people what other people put as their front. I'm not like that. And of course, you're not, you can't be like that. They aren't either. Most of life is, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think the human brain hasn't evolved to get to the point where we can, for our brain to overcome that and, and still be satisfied yeah, with what we have in man, life. I, that, that really resonates. That really, I'm concerned too about just the, the sense of purpose, purposelessness and depression and 
Um, and it's, 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 you know, the Montessori, I'm thinking a lot about Montessori curriculum because of my little one and that they say for parents mm -hmm. that you want to shift instead of saying like, what a great drawing. You drew that beautifully. Like, Oh, you look pretty. You know, it's not about my interpretation of who you are, what you did, but rather is the child satisfied with what they did. And I think that parallel mm -hmm. really reflects back to what social media has done too. And and yet I can't figure out an escape hatch on it. I mean, I don't know. I really worry. I don't know what the next 20 years will look like. What do you think? Um, I'm not optimistic for society, <laughs> but I am optimistic for those who are self-aware <laughs> and choose. Uh, I mean, I mean, at some level, I, I don't consider myself responsible for everyone's decisions. It's impossible true, true. to be. Uh, I figured like, okay, what, I, what can I do for myself? What I can do for those who I care about and love? And just to be to be there when I'm with them, like I really try to make it a statement not to have my phone like right in front of my face when like we're spending yeah. time together. And all my friends know I'm an awful texture. If you want to get a hold of me, invite me over, <laughs> or even even invite yourself over to my house. I'll cook for you. You can cook for me. Whatever. I, either way is fine. Uh, and I think that's that's what I think connection is really mm -hmm. built around, like those shared sure. physical spaces. And I, I absolutely love being a host of this show. I love talking to a bunch of uh, people across this podcast. But it's not the same as if I invited you and your husband your for dinner. to come over it, for dinner. Like it's just yeah, really yeah. We, we, yeah. It would be a potluck. We would bring our own salads. <laughs> we would contribute. <laughs> but but I really value that. I really hear you. And I, I'm the same. It's like I really just – nothing worse than getting a text message that you have to reply to. Um, it's just so much so much nicer to have that shared connection or just a phone call to, to be in touch. And, you know, something I'm kind of uh, – paranoid about it. I have so many other things to be worried about for the company that I, I don't know if I can address this, but as we are introducing technology and phones to people that may be first time users, mm -hmm. 60 Hertz will not be the only app on that phone. And what do we do if right. we're unconsciously encouraging a further phone addiction? I mean, I think that's incumbent on us to start addressing in our trainings, but we, we aren't quite there yet. Hmm. I think there's a lot of addictions that society deems socially acceptable. And I think phone addictions almost, almost I think so too. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So exactly. Can you, can you describe to me what the interface, what would a typical user see on the 60 Hertz interface? Like what is the goal of the application that they have on their either yeah, tablet yeah, or phone? So they, they open it up and there'll be, let's say cards, maybe three or four cards that they can see with big font color coding that is meaningful an icon that's culturally or regionally appropriate so that, it, you know, the house icon really doesn't always mean things to people. The mail envelope icon does not mean the same thing. So, you know, we help with the configuration, identifying what those regional icons would be. And then tasks that they're responsible for. Usually in words, it can be a picture or the icon only, although double affirmation is really important with our approach so that someone can read mm -hmm. a word in their native language and see an icon and have a color coding. So it's like, okay, this is definitely a high priority task that is due today that involves a wrench. I don't know, like those kinds of things. And then there's a little status bar so they can see in a circle view how much of that task has been completed already or how, you know, if are they on step one or step 10 of, of a task that's they're responsible for. So that's kind of the overview agenda. Here's what I'm responsible for today. And then if they click into any of those, depending on their level of literacy, depending on their familiarity with the task, the complexity of the task, there are a range of subtasks. Um, and it can be, you know, just checking the box. Oh, that felt good. Okay, yes, I've cleaned the space. Yes, I've got proper lighting set up. Yes, I've um, recorded the following items for it. And then I've hit submit and I've signed it with my finger because my signature is important. And then the, the workflow is such that when the app is connected to the internet, then that immediately uploads to what we call maintenance manager, the bosses view. Mm. The app also is native, which means it doesn't have to connect uh, to function on, uh, online. And so the data could be stored until the individual wanders back closer to a Wi-Fi area or walks to someone's house with, with better Wi-Fi. Data then uploads. Um, an area that we're really exp exploring and curious about, we had a phenomenal project last year in Suriname with Clean Tech Suriname and our good friends at Energy Tech, and they make a solar battery, a really lightweight, easy solar battery system. And so they said, can you do a lower literacy, a picture-only installation guide for our solar batteries? I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun. It was just tremendous. It, you know, it's like the, 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 the drawings are so darn simple. You know, somebody would say, well, I can do that. I can replicate that. I'll just do it. But the, it was as a result of we tested four different design types, skeuomorphic, photorealistic, line diagrams, cartoons, mm -hmm. 
tested extensively with a wide age variety uh, and demographic of users. Turns out skeuomorphic worked best for this kind of explanation and then went through 17 iterations of the installation guide to teach people you know it's, it's so interesting mm. like how do you call out what's important on a piece of hardware it's like especially if there are lots of dials as we mentioned earlier you know you're like highlighting in red and don't turn it or do turn it or this is actually on the box but you never <laughs> need to interface with it you know there are all of these different ways and then it's also hard how do you explain um um priority or angle so like only turn this first or if you need oh, to line the yeah. panels up with the sun, how do we illustrate the angle? Or if we, you know, there are other, we, 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 another important thing was color coding red, yellow, and green are just practically unquestioned in the developed mm -hmm. world. What we, we all know how to derive meaning from those colors, but that's not universally the case. And particularly in a place where people right. may not have ever driven a car. And so what color suite do we standardize around? Or if you think, Okay, national colors, let's go with the country's national colors. Well, if your regime, if you live in a country that has had civil war for a number of years, those national colors really may not be that comforting or helpful to you. So these are the mm -hmm. kind of style decisions that with our with our guide, we think through and, and work with uh, our customers to create. What does an iteration of one of those 17 redesigns look like? Like, how do you know? The, the V3 isn't good enough, we need a V4. V4 isn't good enough, we need a V5. Like, how do you know when it was good enough to make it, I guess, we're, we're satisfied with this for now and we're gonna move on to something okay, else. Okay, so we'll let me tell you about one of the images. We wanted to compare, how do you explain when the battery is almost drained? So in your mind, you can see that there'd be like a little you know, horizontal battery and we would all depict it with yeah. a percentage of the bars decreasing because we are so used to unconsciously seeing that on our cell phones every single day. Well, for these users, that wouldn't have wouldn't have mattered. And so we had a range. We tested a range of things. Um, what we knew that the community used speedboats to get up and down a river, which is not unlike what we see in Alaska too. So there was a depiction of a speedboat at full tilt, where the nose of the boat was way up in the air, and then like also back down, you know, fully on the water. That mm -hmm. didn't work for the users, even though we thought it might be a good idea. And then we had, you know, kind of another iteration about like an animal hopping quickly versus slowly. I can't even remember where we landed with it, where it ultimately fit, but we workshopped it internally as well as with our contact mm. in Suriname. And then ultimately he deployed with the with the villages a paper prototype. Um, and and then we're continuing to iterate and go back out to field to, to see what the users raise their eyebrows on. A favorite tool, something that we haven't done yet, but I'm super excited um, is, is to put GoPro cameras on our users as they are, are mm. you know, looking at the guide and then doing the installation to see where they're right. pausing or to see what they do backwards and, and understanding from there. What's holding uh, you back from COVID doing that? At this point, we haven't had a chance to, I mean, okay. COVID would be the way to, to deploy it, but many of our customers are, or rather I should say the GoPro would be the way to get over the COVID pause, but our customers haven't been able to be at site. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. Mm -hmm. So in, in these, um, I guess these like walkthroughs, what do you typically, what are you looking for if you were to observe someone interact with Yeah, that? so when we, um, we know that, a couple of things. If someone has not learned how to read, and I don't want to say that all of our users are illiterate by any means, but this is the the base use case that we're that we're designing for. Um, then the ability there's something about learning to read left to right or whatever your language is, right to left, that tracks with mm -hmm. our ability to process information. And so as someone has missed acquisition of that mental framework to process content it can make it challenging to acquire something. So if you didn't know how to read and I was trying to teach you how to change the oil in your car or change a tire, like you would, you might watch me do it and it would be, it would just kind of go over. It wouldn't be that absorbed. And this is true even for, you know, us book learners, we learn 10% formally and 70%, you know, by actually doing it. So, so that's just as important in this context where the individual really needs to, to get on the ground and, and, and try it themselves and then better yet, teach someone else. Uh, so, so watching for how long it takes a user to sort through, like, do they hesitate? Um, we did an example of a very simple set of instructions to test one of the, the, the diagrams um, of pouring rice from three bowls from one big bowl into three little bowls and then arranging them. It was like a five or six step instruction process. And it was so fascinating. I worried it was too simple. I said, I don't think this is, we're not really gonna get good content. This is too simple. 
It wasn't. It wasn't. People still struggled oh. or, you know, then people would like stack, you know, pour the rice in the wrong way or get the wrong quantity and they weren't sure to take it literally. If I show you three spoons of rice from the big bowl into the small bowl, that's not a suggestion. You need to put three tablespoons in. But people just took that as to mean some tablespoons in. Or if you need to return oh. the bowls to the right configuration, how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah. Or what counts as the finalized state? Um, so just really watching when a user questions or pauses um, uh, and then how confident they feel about the end result. Would you happen to know the literacy percentage in, I guess, literacy as defined by understanding conventional American English as well as American American cultural norms in Oh my in gosh, imagery. it's a fascinating field of study and, and there we, we are um, inspired by work that um, a, a researcher at Microsoft is doing um, and then as well our colleagues at Nirvana Tech. Um, I should say the Microsoft researcher, is, researcher, if anybody wants to look up her papers, is Indrani Medhi, M-E-D-H-I-T-S, and she is she is forerunning on this. And then similarly, Nirvana Tech, colleagues at Nirvana Tech are doing things with digital voice assistant and helping um, with financial apps in India. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. In terms of that actual percentage, I have not seen a number. I mean, we do know in the United States that 20% are not reading at a fourth grade level. And so it's easy to think like, oh, we've all got this, but it, I mean, reading reading skills are really falling behind in our own country too. Hmm. So I guess what is the design of the battery icon now in its seventeenth? Yeah, iteration? we we did we did fall back to color coding to, to we said because then the thought came, well, wait, actually, we're doing people a disservice to try to teach them with speedboats and bunny rabbits what their battery means like this is digital literacy this is creating a fluency this this is becoming the mm -hmm. the vocabulary word the vocabulary image that people should have so we went back to the conventional battery icon but did do some color coding that we tested and found that that would work for people and then as i recall we did create a um kind of a stand-in a parallel a visual metaphor we created a visual metaphor to understand what those battery color coding, what they corresponded with in terms of a percentage decrease. It's so interesting to see how examples like the green, yellow, red is so ingrained in almost everyone I know and like at least yeah. personally know. But I do recognize that if you, once you go to like other, if you go to like remote parts of the world where they've never seen a street light, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't really make, make sense. sense. Yeah. It just, yeah. Have you had, I mean, have you done work in emerging markets or with other cultures related to any component of? Um, Never for work, just for okay. volunteering. Yeah. Um, I've been to rural Vietnam. So I, I'm of Vietnamese origin. My parents wanted me to experience rural Vietnam because that's similar to their, yeah. what their upbringing was. So I got to go visit it. Could not do a single thing if it weren't for my parents because I don't speak the language uh, fluently enough to communicate. Uh, meaningful, meaningful interactions, and uh, I think that the thing that stood out to me the most was these mm. like shelters that people lived in, were literally just like she like sheets of metal arranged in a rectangular prism of some kind, and they just like I don't even know if they like duct taped it. Literally, like literally, it just happens to be standing in its like current orientation of of like I don't know positioning, and uh, I'm pretty sure there were no streetlights there. I'm pretty sure education especially like english education is non-existent it's just a different such world. such a different world wow i love that you've had that experience that really that that says so much too i mean just i think even a touch of awareness about how other people are living um open, because we because the difference can be so great it opens so much um imaginatively right. for us too and you know it kind of the with between the lines what you just said makes me reflect on kind of a existential another existential question that i'm asking myself lately which is four places that are new to have electricity and new for electrification. Um, the notion of selling what's called beneficial appliances or beneficial electrification is that, okay, great. If you bring electricity to a community, then do they just like illuminate one dim bulb or, you know, you improve life by also having additional right, things right. At, at the site. And so if that is a refrigerator or a ceiling fan or, um, you know, an ice maker for at a commercial scale for a community, um, a radio. Okay, great. I feel good about all of those beneficial appliances. But as soon as people are talking about installing a television, then I have an emotional response to that because I see, you know, I'm like, oh, great. So we're like spending all this money and effort to bring like Baywatch <laughs> to the like, yeah, I mean, it's, And it's horrible. If you've ever, I'm sure you've experienced this in your travels, like, 
Amer we export the worst of American TV. I mean, what you're going to get on a channel there is just the worst. It's such yeah. a caricature of our own culture and how horrifying. Uh, but, you know, it's like, okay, well, do you not electrify? Because it was offended by people, Right, right, right. You know? <laughs> So, so I do recognize that 60 Hertz is a software company. What percentage of your company's efforts is focused on the software and interactions with the software versus the adjacent parts of the business that support hmm. the software? Um, can you say a little bit more about that or give an example? Do you... Oh yeah, sure. So you, you just mentioned the example of bringing electricity to more remote areas. I imagine part of that furthers your missions of just powering more or control, facilitating more microgrids. Uh. So. I imagine a part of it, your business model or something constructed to your business model, whether you actually partake in it or not, is bringing more micro goods. So, so yeah, I think um, is that we're, we're so sympathetic. On? We're so empathetic with our developer customers. I feel like it's us actually building them, but it, it really is our developers, um, those that, that choose to work with mm. 60 hertz that, that, you know, elect us as a Excellent. vendor that, that are doing that deployment. But we love to say we are supporting them. I mean, they are doing the really hard work. What it takes to bring power to 20 new communities in Benin, for instance, is way different than what it takes mm -hmm. to, to build a software platform. That said, it's, 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 it is also very hard. And as, um, as, my my co-founders and I love to say being tech you know we are not technical we just thought oh if you can order a latte with an app then how hard can it be to build a maintenance app and we we now know how hard and expensive it is to build a maintenance app but, <laughs> um, yeah so so it, it is a different kind of problem but our focus really is on the software um, however, expanding to understand our use cases so that if developers are saying it'd be great if we could maintain this fleet of radios or this fleet of TVs, then then that's certainly mm -hmm. part of our learning and discovery. Um, we're, we're working also, you know, we're back in North America. We're really curious right now about rural electric cooperatives. There are 900 co-ops in the U.S. It's a really fundamental part of our utility landscape. A lot of people are not getting power from the, an investor-owned utility like PG&E or, or, or something like that. And mm -hmm. co-ops are, are it's, a, it's just a beautiful part of our country, I really think, um, in terms of how we electrified the United States, even dating back to the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And so these institutions, these utility companies are very much about, yeah, power in remote places, increasingly uh, telecom in remote, remote places too. So we're testing out the applicability of our software for things like maintaining distribution lines, cleaning up vegetation, um, or increasingly managing these massive fleets of battery solar projects. As a utility says, we want to be 100% renewable by filling the date, mm -hmm. then the way they're going to have to do that, if not through a new contract with a generation, um, with their generation plant, is through a lot of Tesla power packs and, you know, you name it, it's going to be a lot of these. And that's, right. you know, one of the guys we talked to was like, I'm going to become an inverter maintenance company because all he's doing is like dealing with these inverters all over their service territory. And, and that's what we hope to help him with. But interesting side effect. So when I think of most SaaS companies growth, I think of almost a very narrow set of activities, either Facebook ads, Google ads, email marketing, like cold calling people, LinkedIn automation, like there's some very standardized, like common set of marketing tools that almost universally work, or at least one of these will universally work, um, including relationship building. How do you find your customers and how do you attract them mm. to your platform? Yeah, we've been testing. We've done a lot of traction channel and this would be a, an appropriate moment to insert my, um, my favorite advertisement for that book, Traction, um, by Gabriel Weinberg. And yeah, I oh, love that book. I like I like have it like annotated and marked up and I wish I'd bought my fresh copy instead of the 399 Amazon like good enough quality book, but <laughs> um, but I've given it a lot of love. So yeah, that traction book we really took as a Bible and um, and did a lot of testing. Of course, billboard ads are for our niche market didn't get um, testing, but the um, we we so two interesting things on our digital strategy. Of course, I just feel for people that start t-shirt companies because getting found online is like good luck. There is so much competition, <laughs> and even for like you know, energy asset maintenance management software, there still is a lot of, um, there still is a lot of competition. We've found great luck outside of the U S our cost per click in the U S to even make it to like the top page rank 
would be $9, which is astronomical for a startup mm. at our scale, but we can reach a lot more folks outside of the US for two or $3 a click. So we're, we're still doing that, but I'm, mm. I'm kind of, I'm losing my thrill for it. We are losing our thrill because it's just like such a low rate of return. And then you finally get somebody who is a qualified lead in the pipeline and like, who knows if they're going to show up to the meeting on time and actually like close. So what has actually been a lot more effective for us in this very um, collegial word of mouth market, you know, utilities, developers, original equipment, they all talk to each other. So for us, the big, the big fish has been conferences and joining um, membership associations that hands down has just, it's, I speak wherever I can mm. at conferences, just cause I love to, to, to share a story and also talk with, hear from others about what, what they like or don't like um, in their business and see if we can help. Um, so conferences, memberships, and then kind of part and parcel with that is of course, LinkedIn. Gotcha. Actually, I'm not sure. How did, how did, cool. how did Fuse find 60 Hertz? Your colleague reached out. I don't know how. Um, yeah. So there's tools like Crunchbase that are like, like I talk about certain companies getting certain rounds of funding. I think we probably came across either Crunch. It was probably, I think it was probably from Crunchbase. Yeah. yeah we just, yep. Cause we just closed around. So they, that was probably the, can I just tell you, as long as we're talking about Crunchbase, I am an investors. So we, um, we've raised 2.7 to date. Um, and I feel like I'm like military crawling my way across the floor to get all of every last dollar. And it's just like the hardest, way to raise money. But, the, um, the, but so this last round, you know, I announced I wanted a 700,000, we needed a $700,000 bridge. I announced in October of last year. And even though it was Q4 and everyone said, you can't raise money in Q4, we like needed to go forward. And also it wasn't such a huge sum and we had some traction. So we, you know, felt like it was a reasonable ask. So for what, you know, like got initial interest right off the bat, things were looking good. I thought we'd close it by February and then hit some glitches or whatnot. All for the better. It improved the company. I'm so grateful for all the feedback that we got. Right. But in the end, this and then the round was oversubscribed. We closed uh, 1.1.3, just over 1.3, um, about three weeks ago. But what was so fascinating with all of this to me was that it is a round of angels. I have, I think, 18, three different angel funds, and ultimately 18 different angel investors that that came in, which yielded a ton of pitches. I mean, I think I gave hmm. the pitch 47 times. But what I love and what I would actually recommend to anybody else too, is that having that angel investment yields a lot of multipliers. And these are all like grandfather types, or at least that's, that's who our investors are, are, you know, they all could be my grandpa um, or not all of them, but many, a few women. Um, and the, 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 they are providing, I think, honestly, helpful insights, not everything, but helpful insights. And then they all know 20 people that they're like, have you, have you ever talked to so-and-so or can mm -hmm. you reach out to so-and-so? Because to be an accredited investor, you know, they've, they've built something for themselves um, and are going to have a network that, that is valuable. And I don't know, I, I, I took some heat. People are like, oh, it's the most inefficient way to raise money. And I'm not saying it is efficient, but I, I really am banking on the upside of, of the network building and having all these folks rooting for us. And a part of this show, our, our, one of our goals is to also invite, or invite some investors on, on the show and see oh, what their okay. perspective is. And we'd love to be the, the platform that helps connect um, companies mm. and investors. Oh, I hope you do. I think that would be, I think it would be really, you know, we hear the pitch and whatnot, but I think getting investors that are not at that institutional level on, on a show would be just as valuable. And, uh, you know, there's a definite other tier of investors that, that can offer solid advice and know what they're doing. This is the other thing that I've, that I've picked up though, is we, it wasn't until the end of the round that we started talking with true SaaS investors or angels that were also SaaS investors. Mm. And I, wish I'd gotten savvier to that earlier because the metrics that they're looking for, what they're encouraging us to be accountable uh, about really differ from those that made their money in the restaurant mm -hmm. business or those that know a lot about a B2C right, right. brand or something like that. So, yeah. And there's definitely a lot of them, but did you find all of them through personal connections? Yeah, kind of. And then um, we we had a couple of lucky breaks where some big multipliers loved the idea and were able mm -hmm. to help, you know join another angel group. Uh, just have to give a shout out to a guy named Alex Rosenfeld from Climate Impact Capital, who we just um, are so grateful to be working with. But he he networked us with a lot of other angels that ultimately mm -hmm. bore fruit. 
and um, and then I just participated in a number of pitch events and and then reached out and filled out forms and Clean Energy Venture Group joined, Sea Change Fund in Seattle joined, um, and then really the the most meaningful right off the bat was the Alaska Investor Network, which Alaska has a pretty nascent startup community. I mean, we're like you're kind of looking at it. There there mm. there are four or five others of us. Interestingly, a ton of female founders, a disproportionate number of female founders, which is great. Um, but the 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 Alaska Investor Network has not had a, maybe a number of companies that they feel they wanted to invest in, but we were sure grateful for their support. Yeah. Hmm. Did you know that you'd have to pitch as many times as you did to get the capital no. you wanted? No, and, and you know, I like, I, <laughs> I'm laughing only because one of my co-founders knows that I'm not very realistic about these things. And I was like, we're going to have it done by December. And I was like, no, or I said, we're going to have it done by December. She was like, no. And yeah, and I was like, I think it's going to be four or five, you know, 47 times later. And I think I probably lost count. It's probably even higher than that. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to make series A hopefully look easy. Comparatively, probably not, but being optimistic again. Well, I guess it comes down to the metrics. If the metrics are really, really good. Yeah, that's involved. true. That's true. Uh, and it's so, it's, it's so hard. The metrics are the hardest part. If we, if we have an exit, I know exactly, I know exactly who I'm not going to invest in. You know, I like, I know what it sounds like. It's so <laughs> how do you, how do you get, through, or do you feel like your personality type is like resilient to discouragement and disappointment? Oh yeah. There's a lot of that, that, no, there've been a couple, there, there were definitely some, some, some tears. Like it's, it, the, there, yeah, this was not easy whatsoever. I think number one, in a way, maybe this is the Aspen connection, but talking with wealthy people is, is not intimidating to me. And I think actually they, I think founders need to give themselves a pep talk more and not feel that there is such an unequal power balance. Like, Okay, they happen mm -hmm. to be rich and they happen to be thinking about placing capital, but that doesn't make them smarter or more experienced. I mean, like they, they may also be smarter and more experienced, but I think we just need to like talk to ourselves about the, the relationship a little bit more. I think people love to be treated as equals and asked for their opinion. And frankly, we I need to be coached. So that's a nice dynamic going into it. Um, and... And then I'm getting a little thicker skin, I guess, about just like when people have big, bold yeah. assertions that that will never work or that's a bad idea. Or, you know, sometimes you get that hubris in these early calls. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm glad you feel that way, but I don't necessarily need to adopt that or take it on deeply. I think what is challenging, what is challenging, this happened in this round too, is getting the hopes up. It's where somebody will get infatuated mm -hmm. with the concept of 60 Hertz or whatever they think they're seeing here. And then, you know, they, they like all of us sort of go back and think about it. But if there's been a lot of talk and a big game of like, I'm going to take the rest of your round or I'm going to, wow, this is, this is a company that's really going to go forward. And here's, I'll make a big check. And then they don't, you know, they can't make it to the next meeting that I think getting a little more sober myself about like not getting quite as excited. It's hard though. It's interesting that you, you describe it as feeling like you're like, like people pitching are here and like the people with money are like here. Cause I think in my mind, I see it oh, as really? the reverse where I feel like the people who are pitching are, the, 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 the supply and demand of ideas. I feel like there's way more capital in the world than there are meaningful and effective like executors of various like strategies. Oh, That's okay. I, mean. I love that. I don't know if it's like I think or not, but I, I, I think maybe I'm just like, dumb enough and unaware enough that that gives me the confidence to not worry as much and it may not even be true but i feel like it's the it's a dunning kruger effect like i'm i'm not smart enough to know if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I, I really, I, I greatly value that. I greatly value that perspective because I think, you know, we know if you're starting something, it it is so hard to build something from scratch that is of value. Right. It is so inestimably hard to build something of value. And until you've been through it, you don't know that. People don't know that. And so it, that's all the more pep talk to say, you know, when you are approaching someone and you have an idea and an ability to execute, to, to really puff up and feel confident, still coachable, still humble enough to be coachable, of course. And I know I can, I can tell that's how you approach the world too, but, um, but that's, I just really appreciate that shot in the arm that you're providing of like the flow of ideas versus, versus capital. That really is different. I really feel like, especially when you think about all the old money in the world, there's like lots of like family money that's existed for, I don't know, who knows how many generations that's just accumulated and accumulated, accumulated. And there's, you're running out of mm -hmm. things to invest in. Like people 
generally look at the stock market and they just feel like the stock market has done really well in the past, I don't know, call it three decades or so for like X, Y, and Z reasons that are not replicatable in the next three decades, or at least some people feel that way. Whereas, and you see more people go to a venture capital because the general, I think generally venture capital, if you're willing to be patient enough and you don't care about liquidity, has better returns, assuming you are amongst at least the top 50% or mm-hmm. some odd percent of VC. Wow, that's firms. fascinating. I think that really is true, too, about the returns on the market, especially given the current state of, of the, the market. It seems very volatile to me or a little bit risky. So pushing that mm-hmm. money more toward And I heard this, you know, I joined I joined a, a, an angel call early and heard them bantering, pardon me, heard them bantering with one another beforehand and was was struck by, you know, this guy being like, yeah, I've got I've got 40 investments. And, you know, even if he's putting 10,000 in each of them, right, I'm not sure what the sum would be. I doubt it's too much more than that. Like, what a fascinating, mm-hmm. what a fascinating play that, like, the startup is effectively just a diversification strategy. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's also interesting because you, I think the reason Warren Buffett is super famous as an investor is the fact that he's able to invest in something influence its underlying value by through coaching, through um, consulting, Mm -hmm. whatever. And then he announces to the world that he's invested in something. So he has like multiple ways to increase the value of the underlying stock that he's purchased. And I feel that's such a cool thing. Like typical people, like I can't buy a share of Google and then influence the share of Google somehow. Like I'm just (laughs) not at that level. But once you have a capacity to influence, even if you're a small scale influencer in a small niche community, for example, like microgrids, I don't, I don't, I can't name a single influencer in the microgrid. Well, you're looking at one. But I imagine in that community. (laughs) (laughs) No, but Um, you're right. I cannot name another. (laughs) But if there were someone investing specifically in that vertical, uh, they have a knowledge advantage. And I feel like that knowledge advantage, they have the network advantage, they have likely people are going to invest into them and give them money to invest on their behalf because yeah, of that. No, advantage. I think that's absolutely right. That you can, that is a fascinating dynamic because you can see where that, where people are, that is, I mean, that, that is, that would be also what a data point that I derived from this angel round is the degree that it is social proof that everyone is quite apprehensive about making their own decisions. So that's why they'll join an angel group, see if somebody they respect within the angel group makes a decision. And then furthermore, um, the round itself wasn't advancing. We worried we weren't going to make our $300,000 minimum at one point. And then three weeks later, uh, we'd oversubscribed the round and had to go back to the board to double it. It was like Hmm. that fast, which, you know, was quite an emotional roller coaster. And we knew that we knew that it was valuable. It was just that people were nervous. So I think it is just as you said, it's social proof uh, through that Warren Buffett example, too. But hmm. well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but I also want to be respectful. Oh, David, thank you. I've really enjoyed Um, one of the longer episodes. Yeah, anytime. I like just to end all these calls the same way. Uh, what's the best way for our viewers to get in touch with you? Oh, I would welcome like any feedback or a chance to, to talk to someone. Um, so through our website, if you can't remember my email address, of course, the info at um, 60hertzenergy.com uh, is our website. So 60hertz energy is, is, our, is our web address. And then otherwise, it's my name, piper.wilder at 60hertzenergy.com.